Support comes from the San Juan Islands. Spring in the San Juans can provide time to slow down and savor the scenery of quiet beaches, hiking, biking, and whale watching on Lopez, Orcas, and San Juan Island and Friday Harbor. Learn more at visitsanjuans.com. Set your mind to island time. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. It's great to have you along at the Seattle Police East Precinct building, a fake tombstone and a Trump flag. The Seattle Times fires its brand new editorial board member after one column and some tweets. These stories and more are just ahead as we review and discuss the week's news with my panel of journalists, Seattle Channel host and producer Brian Callanan. Hi, Brian. Great to be here, Bill. Thanks. Political analyst and contributing columnist Joni Balter. Hiya. Hi. Good afternoon, everybody. Great to see you. KUOW online editor and producer, Dyer Oxley. Welcome back. Good noon, everybody. Good noon, sir. Twelve bells. And we are streaming this uh, visual-like as well as we do on YouTube and Facebook, so you can come uh, watch the show online if you like. Okay, well, first topic. This week, Seattle hosted the Major League Baseball All-Star Game and its related events. Brian, you went to the Home Run Derby. It was so awesome. Yeah, uh, Julio Rodriguez set that record of 41 home runs in the first round. He's a Mariner. He's a Mariner, and he's a stud. Uh, <laughs> did he follow through the whole way? No. And i got to give extra props to Adley Rutschman, who was a catcher for the Orioles, switch hitter. So he hit it from the left-hand side to start and then switched to the right-hand side. It was pretty impressive. Impressive. Yeah. For those who don't know, it's not quite like a real home run. There's not a major no. league pitcher trying to strike you oh, out, gosh, no. or an outfielder trying to you know snag the ball. But it is it was electric, a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, leading up to this, uh, by the way, anybody else do any related events? Uh, I watched the traffic. You watched <laughs> the traffic. That, yeah. I watched the games. The traffic. You watched watch, the traffic watch. derby. I, yeah, the traffic derby on I five to yeah. get home. It was, yeah. it was pretty good derby, right? Oh yeah, yeah it was pretty yeah. great. I enjoyed the free bus rides. Um, but leading up to the fun, there was a lot of talk of what the city should or shouldn't do to make Soto look like a place where people don't live on the streets. And Joni, overall, what did the city decide to do? Well, what they did was they did some cleanup uh, throughout the city and especially close to um, the ballpark. And then they were kind of funny about the cleanup near the ballpark. They they were clearing encampments. And I guess the Thursday before the game, there was a, a, a cleanup near the near the stadium. And then this bizarre quote saying, you know, that it wasn't tied or connected to the All-Star game. A quote from the mayor's office? Um, a quote from the mayor's office and someone I didn't actually recognize. We have not changed our process or approach for citywide encampment removals in the lead up to the All-Star game. Yeah, right. <laughs> Why not just say what you're doing here? So that quote just had everybody just laughing. We, we know, like when you have guests coming, may I ask all of you, mm. <laughs> do you uh, dirty up the house? Do you clean it up? I've got my daughter coming here. I haven't stopped cleaning every day. Mm. So I think that is pretty normal. And you should just be honest about it. What's what's the jive about? I don't get it. I, I guess I, I'm a little less concerned about the story that came out of the mayor's office as to why these cleanups happen and, and really what happens next, because specifically they were really targeting an area that had a lot of RVs. And so these RVs were cleared out. And so my question is, where do they go next? And I'm really looking at what the city is doing in the month of August, just a few months or a few weeks from now. They're setting up a new safe parking lot for RVs in the inner bay neighborhood with 26 spaces. Is that enough? Absolutely not. It's going to be run by the Low Income Housing Institute. And I'm really interested to see what happens next, because it sounds like people will come in with RVs. And then the goal is, guess what? That RV stays here because we're going to be putting you into housing. Now, is this going to work? I'm not quite sure. The city hasn't had a great record with this, track record with this dating back to 2016 when they first tried this, but I'm interested to see what happens with this version of it in Seattle. I will point out lastly that there aren't that many providers that are interested in doing this kind of service. The city of Bellevue has set aside some money to actually do this, and they can't even find a provider that's willing to do it. So I think there's a few different moving parts here, and I'm just, I'm interested in what happens next. You know, to go back to your kind of your first point too, Joni, that, uh, 
Yeah, I I believe that the city did go through with its normal process. Like, I totally take that quote on its face. Uh, I also believe that the city knew when All-Star Week was and yeah. when they could start that <laughs> process, think? you know? So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, so you, cities do this. We do it for the Olympics. We do it for World Cup. Vancouver did it. Um, but to kind of go back with your metaphor of cleaning up your house, uh, in my house, we have the room. We call it the odd room. Hmm. And when we clean up, we don't really clean up as much as we just take everything and put it in that room. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's kind of how Seattle operates, hmm. right? We we know we have this crisis, a homelessness crisis. We know we have these issues. And it kind of pat ourselves on the back every time we go through an area and say, okay, hey, we, we took care of this area. But people in Lake City know, you know, what happens. And people in this other part of town know what happens. We're just kind of moving things around with not really getting to the root problem. I think that's the larger conversation around this. Yeah. And there is a larger conversation, and it is fair. But if we're just assessing uh, All-Star Week by itself, that that's where I was going. But clearly, yeah. and we're trying so many different things in this city, and we're succeeding at some, and we're failing at others. And, you know, hats off to to uh, the RV park that opens next yeah. month, and hats off to so many different programs that we're doing, and all the a lot of money is being spent, and a lot of effort is working, and some of it doesn't. But you know, this is a problem plaguing the entire West Coast. It's not something unique to Seattle. And we have to be mindful of that, and we have to try to uh, do the best work that we can. So we're not like some of the cities. San Francisco is the obvious one that's really suffering from some of the things it it didn't do or wouldn't do. Well, we might get into some uh, parts of this when we talk election here in a few minutes. But finally, on All-Star Game, did everybody benefit from the events who expected to benefit? A, well, a lot of people did. I, I know that there were some of the different hotels. Uh, they certainly saw a big boost. The downtown core, you were saying? About, on yeah, but time. even on the hotels, you yeah. know that there was 90% uh, capacity. We were at 90% percent capacity last summer right and so you got to kind of subtract before you get into their like 50 million yeah yeah yeah. you know multiplier (laughs) fake number (laughs) i'd say all of georgetown's (laughs) pinball machines benefited from me waiting out that traffic i mentioned okay Okay. so you really distributed the the goods around the quarter by quarters yeah we also know that fiscal quarter chinatown international district was ready and raring to go to benefit and didn't feel in the end many of the business owners there that they did benefit Benefit from it, so it wasn't it wasn't everywhere, and it probably wasn't their number. Pe- people parked there in Chinatown, and then followed the arrows to the to the activity that surrounded All Star Week. And so, I think that's important to point out. Chinatown ID has been a very active political place over the past couple of years. Here, certainly very active with King County last year when they pushed back against the expansion of that shelter that was going on there. So, I think hearing that voice is important. And looking forward when you talk about events dire like the World Cup. Come to the U.S. in three years from now. It's a yeah. big deal. That's going to be a huge it's, deal. We're talking about if the nation came to the All Star Game here, the world is coming to the World Cup, and so how do you Ooh. branch out those plans? You know, I, I think it's true. You're in a for slogan. those, for yeah. those who don't <laughs> yeah. know, it's like it's a half a dozen games or so, right? right. Yeah. It's a big it deal. Yeah. So yeah, we'll, we'll see matches. how the different sorry matches. matches indeed on the pitch on real grass. I think uh, Lumen Field's getting real grass. They're going to roll out the, the real out. turf. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's that's three years off. Um, plenty of time for that. Um, let's talk. Does, finally, does Julio Rodriguez have any home runs left in him, or is that it? Ooh, boy, I, I hope so. Yeah. He better okay. have a so. lot of they them. They need to turn it around the second half for okay. sure. Uh, another topic. You're listening, by the way, to KUOW's Week in Review, and um, the Seattle Office of Police Accountability has opened an investigation into the discovery of a fake tombstone in a police break room. This tombstone bore the name and date of death of a teenage black man who was fatally shot by police. And this thing was sitting up on a shelf in the East Precinct building on Capitol Hill. And an attorney who was working on a separate case got hold of police body camera video from inside the break room and noticed this Black Lives Matter tombstone with the name Demarius Butts. Butts died in a shootout with police in 2017. This is his mother, Stephanie, talking to Cairo 7 this week, shortly after learning about this fake tombstone. I didn't think officers would do something like this. Seattle police would do something like this. It's really shocking to me, actually. And here is a King County public defender who represented the Butts family. Adrian Levitt says he's going to meet with the police chief and ask some questions. Why this was allowed to happen? What 
this shows about Seattle Police Department's culture, why anyone put it there, and then why others would see it, and, and apparently nothing was done. Then the display was removed, but I don't think we know when or by whom yet. There's an investigation. The who and the when is kind of the open questions right. on this. I, I guess when I was considering this topic uh, earlier, my mind just kept kind of going to this. And forgive me for, for throwing a question out to the room here. But Do it. You're thinking about home or your workspace. What is on your shelves? I mean, just off the top of your head, what do you keep there? Sure. Uh, pictures of my kids. Yeah. Right. Right. I have right. pictures of Joni's kids. Right. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, bo- books and right. yeah, a lot of why books, do you sure. ask, why do you ask? I yeah. ask this because, and we all know why we put books up there because we want people to see them. Um, the mm. when I put stuff around my workspace and shelves, these are moments of personal touches. They are moments of pride. They are they are things that are out there for a reason. And I keep going back to this video, and that shelf that they have it on is clearly a storage shelf. It's got mm-hmm. Ethernet cords and like a mess. It's got a microwave, but that. That tombstone, I keep coming that that's placed specifically outwardly facing. It mm-hmm. really does look as it is prominently featured. It doesn't look stored. It looks displayed mm. to me. And that and I mean even if you look at the way that shelf is, it it is propped up specifically to be in that place. Right above that microwave. You can't miss exactly. it if you, you heat it up something it. in the microwave. Even the way the, the shelf poster, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It, it, I the reason I just kinda go through all that is yeah, I think there is more than enough for people to be really, really curious about the who, the when, and the why around this tombstone. I, I, the Trump flag, I, I, yeah, there's no place for a politics thing, anything, anywhere in that kind of setting. That's kind of a, that's kind of a done deal. But that I can't get over just the dis, the placement of yeah. this thing in there and why anybody would have something there. As a journalist, I'm trying to find the reasonable thing to say, yeah. which is it's not a good look. Yeah. yeah, and I should say the the Seattle Police Department says that this might have been something that protesters nearby right. made. It doesn't change the fact that it, it the question of whether it's a, yeah. on display, you bring it yeah. home or not, and why it would yeah. be there. Why yeah. is it in a break room? Right. I mean, this is clearly disgusting, and you know, it. I'm sure we all thought of this. Does it set the city back? Yes, on its effort to to come out from under the federal consent decree, and. Do you want me to elaborate on that? I, oh, I'm wondering, yeah. like the federal uh, consent decree, which talked about uh, Seattle's uh, Seattle Police Department's biased policing and excessive use of force. It's an over federal oversight because of these uh, because right, of these mistakes. mistakes. And as yeah. you all, uh, many people know, the police department has been making some great progress, recognized by all. And this this is just, as you said, not a good look. This isn't going to help. Mm-hmm. I don't think. Now the question is: Is it big enough? And awful enough to um, to really set that timeline back. You know, when I was thinking about this too, I was thinking, you know, many workplaces, old uh, old fashioned ones, I'm talking about, would have like pinups under. Mm. You know, yeah. and we can also maybe agree that not all Seattle police officers are super mature. But the question here is, to me anyway, is who was in command staff that walked by that, put stuff in the micro microwave over and over and over, and said, yeah. I'm cool. No problem. Yeah, it, That's it, the problem. It is a problem, and it's a culture issue, and I think that's something that the Seattle Police Department has been working on. And that sounds like a, a vague thing, but this is what these different agencies that have oversight over the Seattle Police Department are really trying to talk about. Just a quick breakdown on this, Bill. We're talking about three agencies. You've got the CPC, the Community Police Commission. That takes in public input there. Then you've got the OPA, which we were just talking about, the Office of Police Accountability, that deals with these complaints and makes sure that people knows about them. And then you have the OIG, the Office of the Inspector General. That's the agency that basically takes all this and turns it into policy for the Seattle Police Department. So it's important to look at that three-legged stool, as city leaders call it, to see how this all gets funneled in. And this is something that's going to be investigated by the OPA, and that's very important because the OPA actually just had a report a couple of days ago, right before this news came out in the Seattle Times here, but they actually had a report that went before the city council's Public Safety Committee talking about, okay, where are we as Seattle police are dealing with different complaints, etc. It looks like with their mid-year report here in 2023, very slightly we're seeing a bump in biased policing and excessive use of force complaints. These are not full-fledged cases, but just some allegations. So there's a little bit of a bump there. And then very importantly, there's a little behind the scenes, but I think it's important too, 
the city of Seattle has been pressuring the Seattle Police Department to come through with some different policies, especially with, okay, how do you use these ruses when it comes to different crowd control situations? This was a big deal. This is when the police deceived the public, like they said on their radios, that there were armed, um, was it Proud Boy Mm -hmm. uh, members walking around? to potentially scare off people who were listening on scanners there that might be protesting, etc. So that's a bit of a backstory here, but I think it's important because we have these different situations where the OPA brings these things to the SPD, and there's been some trust put in the department to say, okay, are you going to change these things? What does that policy look like? I know in talking with Councilmember Herbold about this, who chairs the committee, she's saying, we've been waiting a long time for this policy, especially with ruses to change. And I really think when we talk about these current headlines here, it's it's another piece to this. What are you going to do to actually change the culture here? Because certainly looking back in 2021, it looks like it's it's not where it needs to be. The department has said that um, I'm looking for their actual words, basically that this was not okay. that this the presence of this at first they didn't say that and this and and a Trump 2020 banner. But that's yeah, that's not how they characterized it at the beginning. Yeah, I think one of the themes of the week is your first answer is not going to be your best. So maybe don't release it (laughs) until you think about it a little more. It was defensive. Yeah, defensive and not productive, which they've been trying to be way more productive. Yeah, but that doesn't. And to their credit, since then, they seem to be totally on board with that OPA investigation Mm -hmm. and encouraging it, which might go back to that consent decree that they really want to be in line with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also trying to figure out a deal for. This is another back issue here that plays a big role here, too. We have a Seattle Police Officers Guild, the main union that actually is made up of members of the Seattle Police Department. They haven't had a contract now for two and a half plus years. So how are we going to work all these different issues in to make sure that they're dealt with fairly? How does that uh, work in with the consent decree, which is another moving target here, too? So there's a lot going on behind the scenes, but these big, big headlines really don't tell a great story about what's happening within the Seattle Police Department, at least right now. I know Chief Adrian Diaz wants to change that. And how about the fact that many voters, and I'm not trying to jump ahead to the next topic, want more police? Mm. And all we see is declines in the number of officers who can do fast public safety. Yeah. Yeah. Do we know whether that Trump banner was against policy? And would would leadership have taken a Biden 2020 banner down or only if there was one but not both? Or what, you, what's you the can, policy? You can look at what is policy and is what is smart. You yes. know, is it smart? Okay. No, it's not. Um, the Times, I believe, pointed out to an RCW, uh, our state law that basically prohibits police on active duty participating in partisan politics, essentially. And if, if that's the case, you might have something there to say that that's not okay from statewide perception. Even in the break room and not on the street? I, I think that would be on duty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. everyone knew when the cameras came along, there was going to be a lot of footage and it was going to show a lot of stuff. So I can't yeah. believe people don't realize that the break room should be included in that. It's so interesting to me that we would not have even known about this footage had it not, well, not without the camera and also just an investigation into what's happening with the constitutionality of SPD enforcing graffiti laws. So there's a lot of different pieces involved here. So there's a lot going on with the SPD. I know the chief who is just recently the permanent chief has a lot to deal with here, but this is part of the process moving forward for the department. Uh, are they in a better spot? When it, it, We just need to see some changes, I think, over the next couple of months here. And, and this consent decree is going to be front and center on that. Yep. Something else happened this week that offended a lot of people. It involved a brand new hire at the Seattle Times, their new editorial board member. And we're going to tell you that story when we return after a quick break. You're listening to KUOW's Dyer Oxley, political analyst Joni Balter, Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan. This is Week in Review on KUOW and on YouTube and Facebook if you search KUOW Public Radio. I'm Bill Radke, and we'll be back after a short break. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. The Seattle Times just fired its newest editorial board member after one column. David Volodsko, hope I'm saying that right, is new to Seattle. He wrote about coming across the Vladimir Lenin statue that's been in the Fremont neighborhood for 30 years or so. Volodsko wrote that his grandfather, who escaped a Nazi concentration camp, had said that that wasn't as bad as Russia under Lenin, who was also a mass murderer and torturer. And when some readers objected to his column, Volodsko went on Twitter 
and continue to compare the two dictators, writing, quote, Hitler only targeted people he personally believed were harmful to society, whereas Lenin targeted even those he himself did not believe were harmful in any way. Uh, and again, he was uh, quickly fired. Joni Balter, you used to write Seattle Times columnist uh, columns. What was your reaction? Well, <laughs> several. First of all, the tweet's gone and he's gone, as you said. Seems like uh, the firing after one column and one, you know, really awful uh, tweet is is an overreaction. I mean, could we talk to him? Could he write another tweet? Uh, you know, and also don't forget the column itself is not the issue here because if you write a column for the Seattle Times, you have the the implied endorsement of of the board because they edit your piece, they mm-hmm. place your piece. Mm-hmm. So really what got him in trouble, duh, for everybody, Twitter, because you cannot have this very nuanced uh, conversation uh, at all on Twitter. You're just yeah. going to end up making a mistake. And the other big mistake here is I don't know if you want to go around in general comparing mass killers. Like, how can you <laughs> and win And one's that better argument? than the other, sure. Tell right. me how you're going to win that argument because there's so much venom left after mass killers do what mass killers do. So I just think it was dangerous territory, the column itself. But I also think firing a very talented, seemingly talented journalist over, A, his First Amendment. What makes you think he's talented? The column itself? Well, so, so, uh, I, di- I didn't love the column, okay? And I don't even get the Lennon statue. I always thought it was some quirky, how Fremont can you be? Uh, People's Republic of Fremont. Sure. I I never really got it. I never spent a lot of time thinking about it, which is maybe why I didn't um, understand it so well, why it's there. But I just think that, you know, you must have had a reason for hiring him. Could you sit down and tell him to get off Twitter? Mm -hmm. Could you sit down and say, when the column comes in, I had columns killed. I'm proud of them, you know. Yeah. But, but. Just kill it if you if you can't handle it. I I just think he deserved an, you know another shot. How about one more column? I, it, no it, more tweets. He was he wasn't afraid to mix it up. That's for sure because he's coming in new to town, observing something with some fresh eyes there, and coming out with a column that I mean, if you looked at any of the comments that were on that thing, I mean they were coming in by the hundreds. And so in terms of garnering some some eyeballs, I mean was was doing that. But it really was that tweet that followed that that really sank this thing. And and like you say, this idea of, of comparing mass killers and who, I yeah, that that was uh, uh, very very strange, very strange way to approach that. And I think that's what what ended up uh, having the times letting them go. You know, I've moved through different journalistic worlds, and one of them was talk radio, and, and my mind couldn't help but go to that when I, not only when I read the column, but when I saw that tweet, because I've met these personalities before. They get into news and media, but they want to, as you say, mix things up, and that's kind of half the goal, and that's the vibe that I got. I mean, now, he violated Godwin's law, which is never a good thing. It's pretty basic, which is essentially, if anybody brings up Hitler, you use your, you lose your argument right away, because everybody mm-hmm. does that. Um, the that's kind of where I, I went with this is just somebody is just trying to kind of garner attention and, mm. and mix things up. I'm surprised that it's the tweet thing that is what ultimately nixed him. And yet Seattle Times has kept the article up, has kept the column up. And I feel like they're kind of a pair in this case. Yeah. yeah. Well, so you asked earlier, so where else has this person worked? According to his um, Twitter site, which is a dangerous spot, obviously, New York Mag, The Nation, Foreign Policy, New Republic, Bloomberg, where I have been a contributor, Forbes, Slate, and blah, 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 blah. So I just think this whole thing, do not ever go on Twitter and talk about Hitler or any of these other folks. <laughs> and I also don't well, buy you had, me, you had me at don't go on Twitter. But, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but wait a sec. But also the idea that this guy is somehow pro-Hitler. I mean, can we just go to the yeah. next page on his bio? He's a Jewish person. His grandfather, as you said, uh, somebody said was a Nazi killer or ran away from the camps. Oh, I mean, boy. this is not in defense of Hitler, but just it doesn't belong for sure on Twitter. That's well, that's a fact. I'm curious. I have a reaction to that. I'm curious what you all think. But he it's not the first time somebody has debated the Lenin statue in Fremont. This has been a, an old topic of conversation. It's a fair question of mm-hmm. we, of whether 
times have changed and that Fremont is no longer associated with, hey, if it's at Fremont, it must be kitsch. You know, it must be quirky and ironic. And and that's a fair debate we can have. Um, and I have heard. So just just regarding the column, my problem with the column was it was done. You could dis- you could talk about the change in context. You could talk about emotion. You could say I or he could quote someone who's saying I feel hurt when I see this statue, and here's why. I feel angry. This is a conversation we can have. But the the column had the the Twitter vibe to me of it was. I found it snide. I found it. I know what the right context is. I'm right and you're wrong. And that. So what concerned me was that the Seattle Times was. That this is the direction they. I hope this is not the direction they're going to go. You use the phrase "garner eyeballs." This is a modern sort of social media way to make an argument. And do we need more of that? Do we need more of the Twitter style? Much less the the tweet itself about the Hitler comparison. Well, they, you're right about that. You're right that it's fair to look at things in modern context. And in fact, a couple things. Uh, former Mayor Ed Murray. Was said that we should take it down in 2017 for for the reasons we were taking down Confederate statues, right. you know, sort of in that vein. Okay, uh, and also more interesting to me is that the, the the gentleman from Issaquah who purchased this in Czechoslovakia and what is now Slovakia wasn't into the politics of it. He liked the art of it and, you know, paid, raised money and did all this to bring it to, yeah. to Fremont. And put it on private property. And put Keep it on going. private property. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, you're sort of arguing that they hired a provocateur and that they then have to live with it. Or, well, clearly they're not going to live with it, yeah. But, yeah. but in their original hiring. As, as you mentioned this, I, I call this Seattle's perennial issue. Because it's just like we always seem to debate. It always comes up. I think he layered, doesn't maybe know that he's new to Seattle, and that's exactly my point. Yeah. Layered over this is this. It's kind of like I'm a newcomer coming in, and I'm going to step into one of the deepest rooted issues that you Seattleites have. I think, yeah, it's you're not going to step too wisely in that. I, I recall working uh, in Kitsap as a newspaper reporter in Impulsbo. There used to be a restaurant bar called Helter Skelter, mm. which is a Beatles song. And the owner who I talked to said he did it because he loves the Beatles. But he also says if you tell the story, you tell the full story. So on his sign was a big picture of Charles Manson next to mm. Helter Skelter. And I kind of get his personality. It was very much like I want to troll people and and so forth. And I kind of feel like the Lenin statue has always had that bit of an Archie Bunker trolling Mm. type vibe. That's the perception a lot of people have. Then again, I say that and I don't have anybody who suffered under Lenin, you know, in my life. I don't have that connection. But it does make me wonder that is it worth just these culture war controversies that we keep on having that ruin everything for everybody at this point yeah. with, with the whole <laughs> Lenin statue. Is it well, still worth it today? I, I don't know. I, I, would, I just wanted to bring up one thought that I had with this. When you talk about these different types of items being on private property, etc., the one that I always think of is driving down I-5 south of Chehalis in Lewis County, oh, the, yeah. the Uncle Sam uh, the billboard there. Yeah. You God, shouldn't pro- be on I-5, right. I guess. Well, well, I, don't, I guess. <laughs> and, and, you know, all the different things that are said there. But again, private property, these are the messages that are put up there. They are meant to uh, provoke people. And so how, how do we control those messages? I, I, I think it's a, it's a good conversation to have. I don't think Twitter is the best place to have that conversation. Well, for one other thought. When I saw this column and I was like, oh, newcomer to town, fresh eyes on a, on a sure. really tired old topic. But sure, let's hear what he has to say. And then for this to be like, this wasn't even the point. You know, exactly. It wasn't like who's better because they, they all are horrifying and you just don't want to go there. But I didn't mind it that it was, a, you know, newcomer comes to town and says, let's take a look. OK, let yeah. me think about it. I hadn't thought about it in a long time. Yeah, yeah agreed. If you're going to write it well, but that's subjective, right? <laughs> right. That's why we're talking about it. OK, so uh, I don't know that you'll hear that name again, the Seattle Times newest and most recently departed editorial board member. Okay, um, since we, we've talked around this a little bit um, as we talk about changing Seattle, right? The changing context of Seattle, the changing, a moment ago we were talking about policing in Seattle. It is time to vote. The ballots went out this week for local August primary 
elections and ballot measures, tax levies and propositions, and we cannot discuss every measure and candidate. The Seattle City Council primary alone has more than 40 candidates. So what is, Brian, what's a larger theme then of this election, or what are the stakes? I think the stakes are huge because we're talking about a city council that's made up of nine members. There are seven positions that are up for election here, and we're talking about a number of incumbents that have decided not to run again. So we're talking about a potential sea change for the Seattle City Council. I'll add on top of that the citywide position eight person on the Seattle City Council right now, Teresa Mosqueda, is running for county council. So there's a possibility we could have eight new council members by the time next year rolls around. So think about that. Mm -hmm. That could be a really big change for the city council. That could be what we have considered more of a progressive council right now. Could it shift more moderate? Some of the dollars that are going into the uh, into the elections right now might might suggest that. So I think this is potentially a change for Seattle. I think some of the incumbents are concerned about that message, of course. And so I'm very interested to see certainly where the votes go, where the dollars go. But we're talking about Again, more than 40 candidates getting involved here. I think there is a push to bring in some new voices. And, that, and I'm very interested to see what the discussion is after August here once this gets whittled down. I, it's it, Seattle has a bit of a blue versus blue dynamic. For sure. Kind of what you're exactly. commenting on. That's right. And but now we've entered this era where it's kind of like, which blue are you? Mm. You know, and I feel like with the council races, it's a little bit of a tug of war between the direction of Seattle. Which shade of blue are we going for? Some folks have made some arguments about Harrell was elected, Nelson was elected, maybe even Ann Davison was elected. You can you know, comment on that either way. But does that indicate some sort of new direction that voters are leaning into now after so many years of leaning another way? I don't know the answer to that, but I feel like that is that is the number one question mark on this upcoming election is, is this a trend or is this just a fluke? Okay, I'd like to answer that in a a Dan Strauss uh, incumbent uh, tweet from, I think it's from today, in which he says, on this is his site or something defund the police was a mistake says dan strauss who was a very enthusiastic supporter of defund the police so he's taken it back in front of his his uh, in front of the yeah. vote yeah. and i think that's that speaks volumes absolutely because if you meet with some of these candidates a lot of them maybe their favorite word is practical now pragmatic that kind of stuff and you don't hear any bragging about defund the police uh in, in fact it's sort of more popular to say we really have to deal with public safety number one issue we have to add police to the budget even though you know some of our relationships with police are still very troubled. So I'd say it's way less about ideology this time. It's about sort of the basics of government, uh, like public safety, like dealing with the homelessness crisis, which is, you know, for every city and for us for a very, very long time. Well, that that depends whether voters elect or reelect candidates who are saying defund police was a mistake. But are there also candidates in the mix who are saying that who are still supporting defunding police or is that that's is that a non-discussion though? i don't i don't think you'll hear that phrase used as much yeah. but in terms as much of, yeah, yeah it, but i think there's a there's a thought behind it in terms of police oversight and what needs to change about the police department yeah. that still is part of the conversation and it's definitely a part of the conversation because the city of seattle's working on this right now how do we respond to 911 calls in a different way we don't always need officers out there and you'll hear that from police officers too So how do we have this alternative system where we're going to not send police officers? We'll send social workers out there, people who can actually help with these person down type of calls, the less Mm -hmm. the lower acuity type of calls out there. So I think there is a changing conversation that's going on about police. I hope that that doesn't get caught up in in this whole rhetoric over defund the police versus not, uh, that needs to keep going, and in, in my opinion, because I think it's an important way for the city to grow. However, this whole concept over defund the police, it, it's going to be a big part of the different debates going on. I think there's a lot of candidates that are walking away from it. Andrew Lewis the from District 7 walked away from this position a couple of years ago. So but he's walking in circles some days, he too. He can yeah. be. He can be, <laughs> sure. But I think that, that that phrase is just so electric and such a lightning rod here. I think a lot of candidates are 
are walking away from it and trying to, I think, maybe be more practical about what we want out of a public safety uh, umbrella here. It's not just police out there. And I, I think it's important to keep that in mind. Okay. Well, I think, well, we, we have some statewide issues as well, a little bit further down the road. But anything more on city before we leave that? Okay, enough. Because the, the statewide elections are not until next year. Right. But what should we know about, let's say, the campaign for governor? Well, you should know uh, that a a big candidate just um, entered the race, Mm -hmm. and uh, Dave Reichert, uh, former sheriff of King County and longtime um, congressman from the 8th District, and he's in the race, and it changes quite a bit about it. Uh, You have three Democrats that had already announced and were, you know, figured to be top, top folks. Uh, Bob Ferguson, uh, state attorney general now, has been wanting to run for governor for quite some time. You have Lands Commissioner Hillary Franz and State Senator Mark Mullet. And with Dave Reichert's entry here, and and a lot of people are saying, you know, he really has a chance to do very well. Uh, But with Reichert in, it's real trouble for the state senator, Mark Mullet, and probably as well for uh, Hillary Franz because – Top two primary can only get two through the primary. Exactly. I think the Democrats think Reichert can do very well. (laughs) I mean, immediately after he announced, it was interesting. The announcement came in a 33-second video that was literally just him showing up in front of the camera saying, I'm Reichert, I'm here, buckle up, period. The Democrats released videos that were like Hollywood levels, inspirational music, four minutes long. And that 33-second video had them coming out swinging within seconds. So clearly, the Democrats feel that Reichert is a threat to them in some way, perhaps because it is those top two vote-getters. You know, it's going to end up being a Democrat and a Republican. Now they're maybe trying to buy, I want to be that Democrat. Yeah, and, and I think they're going to be attacking Reichert on on choice. Uh, that's that's a huge part of it in terms of abortion rights, et cetera. And I think that's where you saw those ads from the Ferguson camp. You're right. right. They came out literally right after uh, Reichert announced. And then there was a little follow-up in case you missed it on the, on the Monday right after. So I think that they're very aware of Reichert as a competitor here. Uh, I will say that Ferguson has the war chest to be working with here, $3 million and counting. So he's a big, big leader in that department. I'll be interested to see where the money goes uh, with Reichert in the race here. Again, more of a moderate Republican, has been critical of President Trump in the past. I think that's something else the Dems are going to try to uh, attach to him. Hillary Fran said, hey, guess what? Has been what? critical of Trump? He, is it? And, and, he has been critical yeah, of Trump okay. and said, you know, he, I'm He right. voted with him a lot, but he's also been critical. So right. he has okay. both of those. Wrote, wrote in Mike Pence as a candidate rather than... Than, uh, Donald Trump right. uh, for president, etc. So I think there are some ways that he's going to try to distinguish himself. From- are you saying the Democrats are going to be publicizing his own statements to try to oh, yeah. turn Republicans off of him who are more of Trump fans? T- turning moderates, I think. I think there might be some disaffected Democrats out there who might be looking for another choice. Well, they're going to they're going to go after him on choice, like you say. Yeah, that yeah. is that is you know. This is a moment in time, and other states are, are doing some wild things on choice, and so he's going to have to live with that one. Yeah. Okay, final thing before we take a break. Um, there's news in the campaign for the position that Bob Ferguson is trying to leave, Attorney General. U.S. Attorney uh, uh, Nick Brown has jumped into this, and I think he's going to be a— Democrat. The Dem is going to be a a big leader, former uh, Governor Jay Inslee counsel here. So uh, he's up against Maka Dingra, uh, the Senate Law and Justice Chair from Redmond. I know she got a few people upset with her position on police pursuits over over this past legislative session. So those are the two big, big people that I'm keeping an eye on. That's another blue versus blue kind yep. of situation, yep. too. I think so Brown far. is angling. So far. Yeah. yeah, I think he's angling for more of the moderate side of things, yep. from what I can tell initially. Uh, this might be neither here nor there, but is anybody expecting Lorena Gonzalez to dip mm. her toe into this at all? Because I remember the last election cycle— by mistake, her campaign video for AG went out really quick, and then it turned out Bob Ferguson was not leaving and had to pull that back. So yep. I've been kind of wondering about that. Hmm. I'm not sure. I, she's been in I Olympia. haven't heard her yeah. name no. right. at all, but also there's a lot of Democrats already in, and I think mm-hmm. a lot of folks are going to be coalescing uh, around Nick Brown yeah. uh, just for his 
incredible resume and stuff, and I think I think Jay Inslee might might have endorsed him already. His so, former counsel, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, on he's that a one. survivor. Yeah, right. That's a good way to look at it. So finally, ballots went out this week. How long do we have to return those ballots? Anybody remember the? Oh shoot! What is that date? Date, date in August? It should be right. August first is the primary. Yeah, right? there we go. Yeah, yeah, August first, usually eight p.m. By 8 p.m. The, yeah. August first. Get them in. Get them in. Okay, we're going to. This is KUW's Week in Review. Uh, we're on Facebook and uh, and um, Facebook and YouTube. YouTube. Thank you very much. Um, so find us there. Search KOW Public Radio. We're going to take a short break. We're going to, to recharge our batteries and then talk solar power. So stand by. This is KUOW's Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke, and I'm not alone. I'm with political analyst Joni Balter and Seattle Channel's Brian Callanan and my partner, my colleague, KOW online editor and producer, Dyer Oxley. Uh, running down the week gone by, you know, something we rarely badmouth in this region is renewable energy. That is nothing but good, you might think, except that the big renewable energy developments tend to be in rural areas and some people don't want them. Dyer, there's a new project to figure out where in our state are the least controversial places to build solar farms. Yeah, a story by Courtney Flatt over at Northwest News Network had me uh, curious this week. Essentially, Washington State University has developed a new map, and this map is designed to show where are you least likely to step on people's toes if you want to put in a solar project. If you read any headlines about this, you probably hear about folks complaining that I moved to this area for the landscape and the scenic you know, ambiance, but I don't like these solar panels now that are obscuring the view. But there's these other issues that are a little little bit more nuts and bolts, like conservation areas, um, farm and ranch land, where our food comes from, you know, where are the conflicts there? And that kind of snarls our efforts, especially when we have these goals for renewable energy in Washington state. That snarls our efforts getting solar power into our own state. So this map, hopefully, thumbs, you know, fingers crossed, is going to kind of fast track those projects, get more solar into this state. Um, there is a notable, uh, you know, asterisk here that uh, these maps didn't take into account tribal lands um, or culturally sensitive lands. Uh, the tribes that Courtney talked to said that there's still going to be on the ground surveys that are going to cover that, um, but there still are other conflicts out there that we could potentially be running into. But good news, hopefully not get some more sooner. Yeah, I had a question on this one, Dyer. Is there a way? Because I imagine part of this whole process is, all right, you are a farmer. You're a tribal landowner. What are the benefits that can be accrued by having solar panels other than the energy benefits? What are the benefits, maybe it's some sort of tax write-off or something like that, that you could accrue by having this type of array on your property? There are... Most of the incentives right now seem to be targeted at residential. When you get into an actual farm, Mm. solar farm, you're getting more into like companies getting into this. And I think you find a lot more startups doing that. I am not going to even pretend to try to speak on the incentive programs for for those. Um, But in those instances, you're most likely just selling off your energy to the larger company in in the region, which there are only a handful here. So if you're getting into the solar power market, you're probably going to be one of the only ones around to sell that energy off to PSE and a number of other ones. BPA, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I also have a question. Um, well, clearly, you know, if you're going to do solar development, you have to do it where there's a lot of sun that you can mm-hmm. capture. But I don't understand one piece of the process, which is why not uh, include the tribes right from the beginning? Because you are going to just get into so much trouble if you don't. I think that's a very, very good question. I think the folks over at Washington State University, <laughs> that's, if you look at their actual study that they did this on, they say that they spoke to the tribes and, 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 and tried to include some voices there, yet this reporting says that didn't necessarily really happen. Um, again, there already are state laws and regulations on the books that you're not going to be able to really cross those lands. Maybe maybe they and, figure they, they won't be getting their best investment there because yeah. there'll be so many challenges right. or, or something like that. But they're big landowners. Well, you think of uh, Anna King, another Northwest News Network um, reporter, recently reported on a lot of the lands in Washington and Oregon that are still used for foraging and mm. growing by a lot of Native tribes. Yep. That's the kind of conflict you're going to run into. You yeah. might look at a bare land – but it's not really bare. 
there are things there that you can uproot and eat and consume that a lot of tribes are still uh, subsisting off of these days. And that's the kind of issue you run into. If a tribe or a farmer or a rancher doesn't want a solar farm there, they don't have to put it there, right? So why is there a – what do you mean that there's a conflict regarding farming or ranching? It could be also the thing about next door. I think the, the I think the most understandable conflict you have is something like conservation land, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have a plot of land where there is probably some benefit that you just don't see right away. We mm-hmm. have a lot of critters in this area, some on the endangered species list. Uh, we have a lot of ecosystems that we don't want to disrupt. You look at how dams disrupted salmon runs and we didn't really expect that at the time but now we're dealing with that now so what are you going to put in there today 10 20 30 40 years down the road is going to harm wildlife and conservation areas what are you going to do in in, in and again i uh, my farming experience consists of my backyard uh, plot that i just pulled cabbage out of mm-hmm. but I have a worm farm, so I'm pretty much an expert. You and my (laughs) wife would get along. She's really into the worms. Anyway, the uh, the, the farmlands, uh, I'm not quite sure why a farmer, and if anybody knows, I would would appreciate your thoughts, dire at KUW.org, wouldn't necessarily want that next. I feel like you would be a direct beneficiary of it. But then again, yeah. Well, I also think, and this is slightly off the topic, but I also think that eastern Washington – is viewed as a good place to do some of our new uh, green jobs kind of thing because this week this uh, Silicon Valley startup called 12 uh, opened up um, a plant that's going to produce sustainable aviation fuel. Oh, yeah. Right. So I don't know. Near Moses Lake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Moses Lake. So are we going to just – are we going to start to really see some of the green jobs in in eastern Washington and this – they complement one another in in their own way? We're going to have some green jobs in Seattle too because I believe the new hydrogen uh, production facility just moved into town. Um, green jobs is the future of kind of like the next frontier of industrial revolution that we're going to have. So Eastern Washington is, I believe, going to pump out a lot of those jobs, mainly because there's nothing really there to compete with it at this point. And when you talk about our state trying to use all renewable energy, I think the target is 2045, which which isn't all that far away when you think about it. Does this whole concept of installing solar farms and trying to do it in a more expeditious way – are we going to get there? Did, do you have a feel about that big, big picture? Uh, there's an official state <laughs> answer to that, I'm sure, that is out there. Personally, it, when I look at these things, I, I kind of think mm, maybe not. Yeah. going to re- that, reach that right away. And Main, does, does hydro enter that conversation? Hydro enters this conversation. In some, in some circles, nuclear enters this mm. conversation. They are definitely working on more mobile nuclear production facilities in our own state right now. Uh, winds, which we already have, but yep. we're also looking at offshore at this point. Um, right, I right. haven't heard anything about tidal energy, and we have a whole Puget Sound here that has a lot of tidal energy, and I haven't heard anybody talk about that. We have a lot of patchwork options in this state, which seems like that's the future of renewable at this point, especially if you want to start weaning yourself off those fossil fuels. Hmm. Yeah. Super interesting. Okay, yeah. Thanks for drawing attention to that Northwest News Network uh, piece. Um, so, finally, a time we've got Four minutes left in our week in review, and I always try to leave listeners with something to smile about. Earlier this month, I followed up on the name Atlas. Did, were any of you on the show when I discussed yeah. this? Axios had flagged a, a baby name study showing that the the name Atlas is a trending name for boys in Washington. Uh, trending relative to itself, right? Like it's it's increasing more so than other states, from what I could tell. So, and I, I played you last time I, I talked about this because I had asked listeners who do you name your kid Atlas and why. So I played you a little bit of a conversation with a listener named Karina who named her kid Atlas because her partner was large and her dad's a bodybuilder and she figured <laughs> her son would be big and his last name is Powers and she liked the name Atlas Powers. Whoa. So one more thing, I got an email from a mom named Michaela who said she was looking for names that would make her boy sound like he could crush cars between his fingers, said Michaela, and uh, she told me about that. You know, we did the the usual run through of you say the name and then you say all of the, you know, easy to think of um, ridiculous uh, nicknames that could come from it. And so Atlas felt pretty safe overall Addie. passing oh. those tests nobody you couldn't you couldn't think of a way someone was going to skew that name 
You know, I did have a coworker who uh, jokingly referred to him as Baby Map Quest for uh, a little while, which I thought was hilarious. But Atlas um, Map but no. Quest, yeah. May, uh, Michaela also reflected on the whole idea that you need to give your kid a special name. She says they checked the Social Security Registry for five years prior to see how many babies nationwide had been named Atlas, and there were only about 50. And now, after everybody telling him what a unique name it is, uh, her kid's now in school with three other boys named Atlas. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we go to all this trouble to be so unique. Um, and I'm wondering, it, like, it makes me wonder if the other parents had the same sort of we're going through the same sorts of checks, the same sorts of protocols. We want this to be a unique name. We want it to be uncommon. Um, and if going to all that effort, like we all just worked ourselves into the same into the same place, more or less. As Michaela told me, maybe it's proof that people are not as unique as we like to think they are. <laughs> you know how you test a name like that? What you do is you okay, you're going to pick Atlas. You walk into two or three daycare centers, yell <laughs> the name, and then see what happens. And then yeah. you know you've got a unique one or... Or one that everybody already thought yeah, of. I guess this shows where you, my mind is at, because I mean, it's like Atlas. Like, are they going to be good at geography or something? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you go back to the ancient Greeks, there's the guy, he carried the world yeah. on his shoulders. Yes. Do you want to lay that on a kid? That's <laughs> what I, that was yeah. that was my reaction the first day I found out about yeah. it. Wow, yeah. that sounds like pressure. Parents, <laughs> you want a strong name? Kalel. Okay, Bruce Banner. Yeah. The names right, are already right. out there. That's true. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Done. Uh, that made me smile. That whole conversation. Anything made you smile this week? We can tell listeners about. I, I was just thinking about this day thirty years ago. I was. It was Bastille Day. It's Bastille Day today. I was mm-hmm. in Paris on the Eiffel Tower watching the fireworks go off. And uh, is it better than the Fourth of July? No, uh, USA all the way for sure. But it. it it's Be careful! One, Don't put it on Twitter. Yeah. Well, no. <laughs> All I'm saying is it was an incredible moment there, and it just had me thinking, thank you, thank you for pasteurization and awesome (laughs) cinema and great wine and pastries. Vive la France. That's just what I wanted to say. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Anything else to smile about before we go? Well, I was smiling at this sea otter, female sea otter, who's board jacking off the coast of- Paddleboards. Stealing them. Stealing surfboards, paddleboards off the coast of Santa Cruz. I mean- it just made me laugh that they and they've tried to intervene a couple times and they can't seem to stop it. It's just funny. Even the even the uh, sea animals are kind of grumpy right now, right? Yeah. <laughs> Difficult. Yeah. Otters are no joke. KUW's Mike Davis just reported that Hedwig and the Angry Inch is oh. performing in Seattle. I didn't know that. Now I'm super stoked. I don't like musicals. I like this musical very, very much. I so, saw that yeah. musical about 25 years ago at the Rebar. Right. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Nick, That's the, the late way to Nick see it. Garrison. Yeah. Check okay. it out at Arts West. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Arts West. Okay, we got to go. Brian Callen on Seattle Channel. Uh, contributing columnist Joni Balter, KUOW online editor and producer Dyer Oxley. Thanks for being our, our journalist this week. Love Thank to you. see you. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Producer Kevin Kinestat, social media and live streaming from Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. Jason Burroughs running the board. I'm Bill Radke. Back next week. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.